0: we're in the Bible, in the Word. We've been going through Genesis, and today would be the day that you end the reading of Genesis and begin the reading in Exodus, right? So uh, it's possible that you haven't quite finished and you haven't dived into Exodus yet, and this probably should be next week's sermon, but the elders and I are going to be at an elders retreat, and we're going to be learning some leadership things uh, related to, to being elders. So... David Thomas, Dr. David Thomas, the former chair of the religion committee, the religion department at Walla Walla University, will be sharing the message next week. And since I can't share it then, I'm going to open up the book of Exodus today. There's something that we learned from Genesis. We learned that trusting in God's promises is the only way to a good life. Think about the story of Abram and you realize when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And when Abraham tries to do it on his own, it always messes up. Trusting God's promises is the only way to the good life. Most people, no matter the religious persuasion, are interested in having a good life. Would you agree? Would you like a good life? You know, financial security, relational fulfillment, internal peace, purpose, and Meaning in life, mental and physical health, joy. Does that sound good to anybody? Yeah. And it's true. When we trust the Lord, that's our best ticket to a good life. It's in trusting the Lord that we, we find uh, peace and meaning and right, financial security and all those things, and yet it doesn't always work like that. It's not a perfect formula. If you trust God, nothing bad will happen. No amens. No, nobody, nobody agrees with this. Let me say it again. It's not a perfect formula. It doesn't work like this, that when you trust God, everything is fine and no problems in your life, right? It doesn't work that way. We know this. So if trusting God doesn't give you a life free from trouble, then what? Should you look elsewhere for a good life? No, there's no other place for a good life. But what do we do when our life isn't the good that God designed? Well, <clears throat> we need to turn to Genesis or Exodus chapter 6 and look at the story of a man named Aminadab. Anybody know who Aminadab is? No? It's probably because there's only one verse in the whole Bible about Aminadab. It goes something like this. Aaron took his, as his wife, Elishabah, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And that's all we know about Aminadab, and yet his story is essential for us to understand this idea of what happens when things aren't going the way we thought they should. Can I tell you a bit of the context of Aminadab's life? Because even though I don't know his story, I know his story, and I think you might know it too. Aminadab lived during a period of slavery when Israel was forced into hard labor, and there were some really awful things going on. The pharaoh at the time was causing babies to be thrown into the river and fed to crocodiles. It was horrible, awful stuff. And so when they are in this really, really bad experience of slavery and their children being taken from them and killed, right, this is Aminadab's story. His children lived during this time. He, and, and during this time, it was about 400 years, between the time of Joseph when uh, Joseph's family came into a good experience in Egypt, and this time of Aminadab, when slavery and awful things were happening. 400 years they'd been in Egypt, and it, it had been a bit that they'd been involved in this slavery thing, and uh, as they had been going through this 400-year time in Egypt, their faith began to erode, and they stopped doing things like honoring the Sabbath. One day, uh, a little boy, um, a baby destined for the river, ended up in the palace instead. And this little boy, Moses, which means out of the river, he was raised in the palace, uh, given all the benefits, and, and there was a little bit of a, an inkling of hope. Uh, but this prince named Moses, um, 40 years go by, and He gained all this influence in the palace and yet he then threw it all away as he killed one of the Egyptian guards and had to flee for his life. And during that next 40 years after Moses fled for his life, things got worse and the children of Israel were crying out to God for help. This is what we know about Aminadab's life. I don't think that any of us would think that it's a classically good life. This is not a fun experience. And yet, God would make great good come from this horrible situation. Now, since you already know the story of the Exodus, we're gonna stick to just a, a few highlights um, to try to understand this idea of the good life. The first encounter Aminadab likely had with God's power was when he and a group of the other leaders of Israel met with a guy named Aaron and his brother Moses. Aaron they knew, Moses, he'd been gone for 40 years, and so Aaron speaks on Moses' behalf, and they talk about this time when Moses sees God at this burning bush experience, and they talk about God's plan to get them out of Egypt, and they're, they're thinking, this is good stuff. God's finally answered our prayers, and, and they, they have some questions, and maybe Aminadab is the one who says, um, how do we know? that this is true. And then Aaron and, and Moses show them the leprous hand. He puts his hand into his coat and brings it out, and it's leprous, and he puts it in again, and it brings it out, and it's not. It's, it's healthy again. Um, and then he takes his staff, and he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And then he grabs the tail of the snake. Anybody up for that? He grabs the tail of the snake, and it turns into a stick again. And everybody, including Aminadab, are, well, they believe, and they're excited. God has come to deliver us. And in fact, Exodus 4.31 says, and the people believed, and they bowed their heads, and they worshipped. It was during this conversation that Moses and Aaron must have talked to the people about their faith in God, and because they had most likely stopped observing the Sabbath, this is one of the things in worshipping God that, that Moses and Aaron invite them to embrace again. And we know that this is probably part of the story because in Exodus 5, 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. See, he's inviting them to keep the Sabbath and it's not good for Pharaoh and the the slave masters. And then he told the foreman of the Israelite slaves, do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That, that will teach them to listen to lies. One thing we know about Amminadab is that his son, Nashon, became the prince of the tribe of Judah when they were in the wilderness, which would suggest that Amminadab himself was one of the elders and leaders in this uh, group of people. And so when they're added this burden, they come to Moses, and they, they said to them, "'The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us.'" And even Moses thought something was wrong. Uh, the Lord, he says to the Lord, "'Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, has, he has done evil to this people.'" and you have not delivered your people at all." Deliverance. This is what they wanted, deliverance from their struggle. They wanted deliverance from problems into good life, and in the process, what they got was a burden and and problems and worse things. And I think this is one of the problems we have. We look around hoping for a good life, and instead we find ourselves with burdens and struggles. And in dissatisfaction, we go to the people in our lives, the leaders, the pastor, maybe God himself, and we complain. I've asked for good things. I gave my life to you. I was baptized, and things just aren't working out well. Why aren't you giving me a good life, God? Many times I've seen people make a commitment to God in some way. Maybe they say, I'm going to keep the Sabbath. Maybe they say, I'm going to get baptized. Or uh, maybe they say, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. And then struggles come. They, They find that uh, work gets more difficult. Uh, sickness comes, and, and the schedules are all thrown off, and, and they they're, they stop reading through the Bible, or they find that um, even though they've just been baptized, now they've got all these doubts and struggles and 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 temptations and and uh, sins that they're struggling with, or maybe they decide to keep the Sabbath, and their their boss adds. Uh, a, a day to their schedule or shifts things around so they have to work on the Sabbath. And now what do they do? Are they going to lose their job because they made a commitment to follow Jesus? Aminadab's experience is our experience, isn't it? And it can feel like God, like you, you go to God and now he's persecuting you <laughs> for giving yourself to him. But what we need to recognize is that our current problems, our current pain may be a part of God's plan to bring deliverance. It might be essential to get us there. Just imagine if the people of Israel had been in Egypt and they hadn't been struggling. Imagine if it wasn't a problem. When God said, go, would they have? When God delivered them, would they even want it? Sometimes the struggle is part of the deliverance. If you've ever dealt with an addiction, you can understand this idea that it costs something to be delivered. I even have a slide about it. There we go. (laughs) Deliverance costs something before it blesses us. If you've ever dealt with addiction, you understand this because sometimes addictions are really difficult to give up. It seems like they've got these extra long tentacles that reach into your life and And it may feel like there's days of cold sweats and fevers and feeling like you're going to die. There might be weeks of battling thoughts of temptation, months of realigning your life according to new values and years of faithful struggle to keep your life on that path that you know you want to be on. It costs something before it blesses. And this is something that the Israelites needed. They needed to go through this this pain, this struggle, in order for them to to know that the path that God was leading them on was the right path. Aminadab and the other leaders struggled through those days of harder labor, trying to quell the complaints of the people as they blamed Moses and Aaron for their added trouble. And then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And they, they go to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. That's what the Lord says to you, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses then does what God told him to do. And he told Pharaoh that the water would turn to blood. And for those Israelites who were struggling already, suddenly they didn't have any water to drink, no water to bathe or clean things in. The fish started dying and it was putrid and stinky and awful. And the Israelites experienced it right along with the Egyptians. Well, Pharaoh complained, um, said he'd let the people go, um, Moses relented uh, the water turned clean again and then, and then he said no I won't let you go and, and then there were frogs frogs everywhere frogs in the kneading bowls and in the cook, on the cooking utensils and the, on the table and chairs and in their beds and in their food and on their floors and everywhere there were frogs it was awful stinky as people tried to kill them and they would dry out there in the sun it was nasty And everybody experienced this, even the Israelites. And if you were there during that time and you were maybe uh, knew Aminadab, you might see him complaining as he kicked those uh, invasive frogs out of his door time after time after time. Pharaoh relented, said, I'll let you go. And then Moses said that he'd uh, send the frogs away and they all died. And they had to sweep them up into piles, except for the ones that were in the river. And then Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let you go. And, and the, the dust, the very dust of the ground, which was everywhere, turned into these flying gnats. You ever gone on a walk and, and unsuspectingly, you're just walking along and then woof, you're like in a cloud of all these little gnats. Can you imagine if they were everywhere and every time you breathe, you were breathing in gnats? This is what they were experiencing, and it was the Egyptians and the Israelites that were experiencing this. It was difficult and hard, but you know what happened during that time? Something switched in the minds of the Israelites. The people who weren't certain who God was, who had just started worshiping Him again on Sabbath, now they started to realize that there was no frog God that the Israelites served that had more power than the God that Moses talked to them about. Uh, the, the, the god of the, the, the beetle god, the god of the earth, suddenly turned into this super annoying thing that everybody was killing, right? Uh, these gnats, and, and, and the god of the river had no power over the god of heaven. Something switched in the minds of the Israelites, and it was essential that they go through these difficult experiences. They were just annoyances, to be honest. Really, that's all they were, is annoyances, really bad annoyances, but they were just annoyances. When, when finally the, the earth turned into gnats, Pharaoh's uh, magicians, they said, this is the finger of God, and it was. It absolutely was, and then God told Moses that he had a plan. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Do you see God's goal? God's goal is to bring all his people, all his hosts, out of Egypt. And it's essential that their minds want to get out of Egypt in order for that to happen. But there's a second goal that he has. He says, I want all of Egypt to know that I am God and that there is no other. While these experiences hurt them, the first three plagues weren't deadly. And then things started to change. Moses went back to Pharaoh after he said, Get these flies away, and that happened, and then another plague came, and it was um, uh, the death of the animals, and it was boils on all the people of Egypt, making it so that not even the priests could go into the temples and uh, do the services to their God, because they were unclean. There was burning lightning and and massive hailstones that fell and destroyed the crops and killed animals. There were swarming locusts that ate up everything else that was there, completely destroying the farm economy of Egypt. And and many of the structures and all kinds of things happened there. And then there's darkness. The sun god Ra is struck by the god who created the sun. And it's darkness. So dark that it's like you could cut it... With a knife. Have you ever been in a closet, no lights at all, no lights coming from anywhere? You can't even see your hand in front of you, or maybe in a cave. It was just like that all day and all night for several days. Just completely shut down the entire economy of Egypt. Except none of these plagues fell on Israel. Not one. They had fresh water and they had light. And their animals didn't die and they didn't get hail and their their houses didn't get um, crushed or burned. None of it happened to them because God had set them apart and said, these are my people. Sometimes we deal with struggles. But if you look around, you'll find that the things that others experience, man, if, if I hadn't known the principles of following Jesus, I'd be there. One pastor said it this way, but for the grace of God, there go I. How many people in your life have you looked at and said, oh, I pity that person, but I know I could be there. You see, God sets us apart. Even though we do experience trouble, God sets us apart and he blesses us even in this life that we can't always call the good life. Pharaoh relented after the darkness and said the people could leave, but then as soon as the light came back, he changed his mind again. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here, and when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Moses told God's plan to Pharaoh. And then he made this bold prediction to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh wasn't about to to have anything more to do with Moses. He said, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. And this is what Moses says, And all these your servants shall come down to me. This is what's going to happen next. And they're going to bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I'm not exactly sure who had the hot anger, Moses or Pharaoh or both. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let Israel leave the country. And so after giving Pharaoh this fair warning, Moses left his palace and he went to talk to the people of Israel. He gathered them all around. And he said this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and following. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, then let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. So a few days go by, and then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the goat and smear it on the sides, some of the blood, and smear it on the sides of the top of the door frame of the house that they are eating the animal. And that same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with the bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head and legs and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. This was a, we're doing this tonight. We don't have time to prepare this. Roast it over a fire and eat it together. Do not leave any of it until the morning. Whatever you don't eat, burn. Uh, burn whatever is not eaten before the morning, he says. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. I read all that to you because I want you to imagine what a minadab would have been experiencing and all the people of Israel as they're learning about this substitute. Because the plague that would come next was the death of the firstborn child. The first three plagues fell on Israel and Egypt. The next six plagues only fell on Egypt. But the 10th plague, the 10th plague was unique because it wasn't about the nation that you were born into, the family that you had. It was about a simple act of faith in a substitute. That lamb would save your life. And anybody who sacrificed that lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their house, would be saved. It wasn't about nationality. It was about their faith in God. As Moses told the elders about this plague and God's solution for, uh, for Israel, Aminadab and the rest of the people believed. And notice how Moses describes this judgment night in verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. That night I will go through the land of Egypt, and I will kill all the firstborn of animals and of people in the land of Egypt. I will punish all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Nothing terrible will hurt you when I punish the land of Egypt. You probably know the rest of the story. The people sacrificed the lambs. They prepared themselves to leave. The Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave as they were um, mourning the loss of their children. The king's officers came and, Just as Moses had predicted early that next morning, they pushed them out. Go, go, leave. We don't want you here anymore. And then there was the pillar of fire that was by the sea. The sea ends up parting as the Israelites go through. It crashes down and destroys the armies of Egypt so they can't follow. Uh, There was water that came out of a rock in the middle of the desert. There was manna that seemed to fall from heaven every day providing food for them. Uh, The people messed up worshiped an idol. The, uh, the Ten Commandments were given to them, Aaron's son, sons, and that would be Aminadab's grandkids. Uh, they were anointed or ordained as priests in this new sanctuary that God told Moses to build. Uh, they ended up at the border of the land that was promised, and they failed to believe Even though all that stuff had happened, they failed to believe they had to wander around for another 40 years and then came back to the promised land again. And finally, in the promised land, they had judges, and then they had kings with varying results, some leading them towards God and some leading them towards uh, apostasy. Um, And through all of this, the promises of God endured, and eventually, Emmanuel was born, God with us. There's a reason that God commanded the Israelites to do this Passover every single year. God wanted them to remember that he is the God who saves. At one point, he asked the Israelites as they were in apostasy, he's like, is my arm shortened somehow that it can't save anymore? Don't you remember how I brought you out of Egypt with great power? Don't ever forget that. I am the God who saves you. Sometimes when we're in trouble, we look for other alternatives for deliverance. We look for other ways to have the good life. And God's like, no, 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 no. I want you to remember that I am the God and there is no other that can deliver you. Second, every time they were to sacrifice that lamb, they were to remember that it was the substitute that took the place for their sons. And every time they took that, that uh yearly passover meal in they were supposed to remember that Jesus would one day come the messiah would come and be the substitute for their lives for their sins so that they could truly be saved and have the good life and the third reason is that this yearly passover festival was to remind themselves of the promise to Eve that that one day one day god would crush the serpent In the same way, he crushed Egypt. And lastly, God wanted to remind them on a regular basis that they were not saved from destruction because they were the children of Jacob or Abraham, but because they were believers in the God of promise, the God who had made a covenant to deliver them. When Jesus, the one who was called Emmanuel, God with us, was about 33 years old, he brought his disciples into a room and he had the last Passover supper, the last one that would have been needed because that lamb that they ate that night was the last substitute that pointed towards the Messiah. Jesus would die in its place that next day and no lambs would be required anymore. And that night he, he took bread and he broke it and he took uh, grape juice, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, and this is my blood. And he replaced the Passover festival with a new thing, not, not something remembering the exodus, but a, a festival, a, a ceremony, you might say, that remembers the great, powerful deliverance of Jesus on the cross. And it points us every time we do it towards the second coming of Jesus, when he will one day Deliver us and give us the really good life. And maybe that's the whole point of Aminadab's story. That one day, God will bring an end to brokenness and pain and evil. That one day, deliverance will come. And in the meantime, in the meantime... Well, it's valuable to notice that the Bible gives us a basic principle. You will reap what you sow. Right, so, so if you have struggles in your life, it's always good to go back and say, well, what have I reaped to get to here? Is there something God's wanting to, to, to do in my life? But, but more than that, God is inviting us in the meantime, before we have the good life we'd love to have, he's inviting us to trust in him. Because it's not me that brings me good life. It is God in this world and especially in the next. Hope is the mainstay of the gospel. It is the thing that ties us to Jesus, because hope is the active faith of the believer. I have hope in the the deliverance because Jesus promised. He said, I will come again and bring you to myself. The God who created the God who rescued Noah from the flood, the God who fulfilled his promise to give Abram a son and nations would come from him, the God who delivered Israel from Egypt, the God who died in my place, and the God who promised to bring me back home with him. I can believe in him. He's fulfilled every one of his promises so far, and he will fulfill this one. But in the meantime, while we wait, God invites us to live with this faithful trust in Him, a hope-filled obedience that follows Him. Your Your life might not be as good as you'd like it to be. When you imagine what the good life is like, now might not be that good life. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world, and soon He'll take us home with Him to live that really good life.